just because you get a bucket of money doesn't mean that solves your problems. And one of the biggest challenges of post-breach world is the actual transformation, right? You got this, okay, you get this money, you have this wish list, cool. Now you got to find, hire, you know, onboard, ramp up, transition, ramp down, and then sustain, right? Like those are such complicated stages in the whole process. And you have to start giving some of that thought. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I'm speaking with Mike Mello, CISO and VP of IT Shared Services with Life Labs. After shifting his studies from human viruses to computer viruses, Mike dedicated himself to not just technology, but the consumers of it. Now he's a leader and mentor who specializes in post-breach cybersecurity transformations. He joins me to cover his methodologies for building security expertise, leading remote teams, and preparing for a breach. As a CISO, maintaining your relationship with stakeholders and users and security teams can be a challenge, especially post-breach. So how do you build human connections in a remote environment? How important is the customer mindset? And what three key tenets make up his Zelda-inspired CISO Triforce? Okay, Mike, thank you so much for joining for The Uninitiated. If you would, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. So I'm Mike Mello. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer and the IT uh, Shared Services Vice President with Life Labs. And how long have you been with Life Labs? Yeah, I've been with Life Labs for just over five and a half years now. Okay, so so it's been a while. You have two jobs. That seems difficult. Uh, is there ever a you know VP Shared Services and CISO? Is there ever a time when it becomes difficult to be both? So you're right. Having the two jobs definitely a lot of challenges. I harness a lot of internal turmoil, the conflict sometimes, but. You know, I think it's it's actually opened up quite a lot of great opportunities in helping drive better synergy between two somewhat adversarial internal groups. Sometimes, you know, there definitely is some challenges in, you know, what do I look and view as priority uh, and balancing those priority initiatives between the two teams? I think that, you know, I just I have a good team that I can depend on, very open and transparent relationship with them, and we seem to get through it fairly well. Our CISO at Exabeam, Tyler Farrar, who's excellent, he was formerly of Maxar, said something very similar to me. I, I phrased the slightly loaded question, or I asked it uh, to you because you hit on the reason why. There should be similar priorities, but there's often different, right? You have performance and availability on one side, and you have, you know, the sort of the maybe some availability, but the rest of the CIA triad, right? And those are sometimes at odds. So, I find it interesting. I think you're the second or maybe the third CISO we've had on the show that sort of has this CISO and non-CISO uh, dual hat. So a little bit rare, but I think as we speak more today, I mean, I think it's it would be good. I'd, I'd personally like to know kind of the things you did to prepare to be both, because uh, not everyone can be. So is it by design? Is it out of necessity? Is it a part of a plan? Or does it just work, right? So I think that will be interesting to learn. Uh, maybe a question for you when we get a little farther along in the show. But before we go there, I'd like to ask, how did you get your start? You said you were actually never destined for technology. Where did it begin? Yeah, wow, that takes me back. You know, I think originally when I was coming up through high school, I wanted to actually get into music. Uh, so I started with guitar playing when I was about 15. And, you know, funny enough, you know, it was kind of, Dabbling on the idea and ultimately realized, you know, maybe it's probably not the, the greatest career move. You know, starving musician stereotype is uh, somewhat of a reality for some and kind of rested back on my laurels of science and math and went into computer studies. Right. And, you know, I always kind of wanted to get into virology, actually. So I went to Guelph University and studied, you know, human viruses and kind of went down that path and at the end of the day, I just wasn't super passionate about being in a lab and went back to school, did the whole, 
you know, computer science training and really wanted to get into cybersecurity. Thought it was just fascinating, kind of the switch from, you know, human security with human viruses into digital viruses, so to say. And really just went through the motions on that. And I, and I actually had this really great chat with a, uh, you know, a prominent person in the security world, Sean Higgins from the original Herjvec group. And, you know, Sean and I met for coffee when I was early days in school, just, just wanted to pick his brain, ask him about, you know, what do you see out in the industry and how, how do people get acclimated into cybersecurity? I think that's, you know, a very big, crazy, loaded question. But, you know, what, what in his perspective would be a key focus area for me? And, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me was like, try to learn everything, right? Understand how data flows, how, you know, information moves throughout technology. And, you know, I really took that to heart and I really started learning networking, IT engineering, server systems. Because at the end of the day, if you have to protect those things, you kind of have to understand how those work and function. So I had a very technical background coming up through my years in security. And I moved into, after school, went into security engineering, kind of like the architectural side of security. And then for the past nine years, I've been focused on post-breach cybersecurity transformations. So wasn't there a, you mentioned virology, wasn't the first deals within InfoSec, wasn't one of the first antivirus vendors started by a medical doctor? I believe you're right. I, I don't know his name, but um, I, I think I recall that story as well. I think there was two. Uh, the listeners will know, but it was it was acquired by, there was an acquisition, but it was actually, I, I, the name's escaping me, but it's interesting, the connection there. I also thought it was interesting, the the general advice, and I'm curious if you would you know sort of accept the same. I think you would when you had your conversation with Sean. There's many roads into InfoSec, but the road I took and the one that I would most recommend, I think, on the technical side is go learn how to build things first. Watch them fail. Fail while trying to build them. Have outages. Troubleshoot. Understand how systems work then learn how to harden them, and then maybe go into InfoSec. Does that track? Anything you'd add or change to that sort of line of thinking? I've had people reach out to me, you know, maybe pre-university or just directly post and say, hey, I've got a degree in information security. What should I do first? And I often say, don't work at InfoSec for a couple of years. Do something else, like build some things. How often do you think that's good advice, or is there any exception to that? I think it's, I think it's great advice, right? So I actually mentor a few people from various different backgrounds, right? Some are CISOs and some are people going through university. And I align very well to that track for sure. I would also say, you know, and that's the track I followed, right? I didn't really jump right into security. I was doing things kind of in security domains around network engineering, then kind of evolved into network security engineering with firewalls and backup configuration management and all those types of things, right? I think the other component to it is go get some exposure to how businesses operate, right? Because what I see that's lacking the most in cybersecurity is customer mindset, right? We have this amazing capability to come up with, yes, this is theoretically the best way to do this. Here's kind of the perfect scenario for cyber. This is what we have to do. But there is usually a business impact or a end user on the other side of our outcome or our you know, implementation of controls. And really, in order to garner a lot of adoption and create a positive, a net positive security culture in an organization, you need users to be on board. And in order to do that, you ultimately need to be thinking about how is this going to land with my customer, your internal constituents, let's call it, or even sometimes it's your external customers, right? On how are they going to interface with this? How are they going to use it? Is this going to be successful, right? And and why should they want to do that this way? I think those are all really fascinating things that need to be more focused on, especially earlier in your career. So working in the customer service realm of IT is, I think, super beneficial. I did IT help desk for an MSP, working late night hours throughout college, and really just getting a perspective of how frustrating things can be on the customer side with direct impact to IT changes and security changes. 
So you went the direction, you brought up something I was going to mention, and those that have listened to the show know I have an opinion on this. I'm very fond of help desk, field services, desktop support, these sorts of groups. They have had to learn, especially those that have done the job for a while, they've had to learn how to be successful with lots of different types of customers and to give oftentimes remote support. And they typically understand good service and how to articulate problems and solutions. So I find them to be excellent additions if they continue to want to grow and aren't too deeply rutted into those roles. If they want to grow, they're, they're perfect additions if they have the, the want to. So I, I completely agree that that should be one of your known farm systems. And if not, also your sort of your conscripts, if you will. I've talked about that in prior shows where you offer maybe some some shadowing of your sock analysts. You know, be friendly, have them in, let them job shadow, let them look over a shoulder during a shift and have them at the ready. If you do happen one day to have a burst of headcount like you might during a major incident or breach. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Anything you'd add to that before I want I want to go talk about your security analyst position at the MSP, but anything you'd add to that that concept for the listener? Yeah, I think, again, there is no right or wrong answer, right? I think that you can definitely find your journey through many different avenues. There is no like direct tried and true path to get into security. And it's hard sometimes, right? When it depends on what you want to do, if you know you're destined for this you know, CISO leadership track, I kind of like the the track that we've discussed a bit better. A lot of people are obviously drawn into the super sexy, cool pen testing offensive security side, right? Like that's kind of what gets you hooked sometimes. So again, like I think it's just more about just getting out there trying, but, you know, don't be afraid to just jump into something and, and figure it out. It's a long, usually career, a long road ahead of you. It's a fast one too, though. It moves at a very rapid pace. And you know, I think just trying to be as well-rounded as possible is just going to, you know, I'd say pay dividends in the end. The topic of customer mindset, I think, is, even though I just talked about how to bring in, you know, where to sort of recruit from, I think even mature security people sometimes miss that. They lack understanding of how do we make money? They lack even often how do we communicate well? Uh, what are our standards around communication? What do our presentations look like? What do our audit finding responses, control frameworks, you know, all these things that we create, all this content, even some of the metrics that we talk about aren't very sort of customer constituent friendly. And that can over time sort of slow down the efficacy uh, of the team because you might not get the attention you need. You might not show up in the ELT presentation, you might be uh, confusing to the recipient of a message and maybe not get all the credit you deserve for you and the team. Anything you'd add to those? Any any favorite ideas around that customer mindset or better communication even? Yeah, you know, it's actually a it's a really prominent challenge, I think, in the industry is organizational change management, right? It's well, let's be clear, people do not read emails <laughs> in business. And, and, you know, a lot of cyber practitioners think that, you know, hey, I sent an email out. We may read emails, but for the most part, people don't. I, I like to kind of create, you know, at, at a leadership role, and you can even do this in various roles, right, is I like to create a stakeholder matrix grid, right? I understand and have to map out who are my most important stakeholders that I need to, one, identify as allies, possible oppositioning or, you know, opposing opinions, you know, people who need to be educated and coached up. And then, you know, I kind of create a bit of a cadence schedule on, you know, what should my touch point with these people be? And especially in the leadership role, really helps drive, you know, just open dialogue, creates relationships and trust, which I think is the most important part. And if you just show up wanting to help, people are generally very receptive and open to that. So I think it's it's more than just, you know, how do we communicate our our vision and our goals and the new cool things that we're doing? It's also just how do you be human, right? Especially in this remote 
operating world, right? There's a lot of new roles that are very remote. Like my entire cybersecurity team is remote. And, you know, going through a cybersecurity transformation post breach in a remote world, definitely new challenges there, right? But I think that, you know, you have to figure out different ways how to show up to the business to demonstrate we're here, you know, kind of step away from the background shadows and demonstrate that you are here listening to them, you know, as, as an active listener, providing them the, you know, guidance that they need to know on different security concerns or new up and coming things, but also just listening to how things are landing on their side, right? Getting that customer feedback is, I think, the biggest point. And for us, we operate patient service centers. So we have almost over 400 patient service centers across all of Canada. And every year, I bring my entire leadership team and we do what's called a roadshow. And we actually physically go to various patient service centers and lab facilities and we take a tour and we see how the operations are working, engagement with our customers, our actual, you know, organizational customers, and walking through at the end of life of these people who are in operations running our business. I think that has just been the biggest thing that helps drive customer mindset and just that appreciation for, oh, hey, yeah, that really awesome idea we had that we landed, yeah, that really doesn't work well in their scenario, right? So it's really trying to understand how they operate on a day-to-day basis and how we can inject positive and proper solutions that are not going to impede business or going to enable business. Especially with the, the two hats that you wear. Is there a business process issue? Is there a performance issue? Is there a something that's not working the way you thought it did? Is something encumbered, you know, beyond or is there a need, right? Is the is there a turnaround time that's that's not what it should be? Or I think that is extremely wise to be able to do that, especially when you're in a in a remote role, seemingly, for daily ops to get out and actually know kind of what's going on. And you're gonna you're gonna have a better connection uh, with those leaders in the field and the staff. Furthermore, you can articulate uh, the value of what you bring that much more effectively. You can cite stories from those visits with the business unit as you articulate what you need and what you recommend moving forward. If you didn't take the time to do that, you wouldn't sound as authentic in your messaging, and you probably would not be as uh, impactful. I would I would wager. So I think that's a you know sitting down and watching you know how they actually work and what their concerns are. And they're probably more likely to take a phone call if you need them during response, if you visit it. For sure. I think that, you know, to that point, it really just, it humanizes our role, right? And it's it's hard. Like a lot of times people do not know who's on the security team. And when you put face to name, you know, we've lost a lot of social currency with remote work. And humans are social in nature, right? And so I think that just putting that face to name, again, you nailed it, right? Like it's authenticity in our our delivery and our messaging, but it's also just like people can anchor their trust in you now because they've met you in person. They've, they've formed some sort of social bond with you. And, you know, I would say that that has significant value in us landing a lot of the things that we've wanted to do in the past. So, uh, I've been super grateful that we've been able to do that. We've already covered this in part, but I think this is important. There's many people who have had to make this change, and I think there's a lot of mid-level managers who probably aren't very successful, honestly. And and I'll be honest, I've done image and post-breach transformation. I've done a fair amount of, of incident response, a fair amount of breach response, and, and then built big programs and uh, everything in between. What I haven't had to do as much is a completely remote operation. Meaning when I've done incident and breach response, it's typically been done in person where you're sort of with the group. I've often told people that when I have done remote work, uh, helping others, primarily in my new role, that it's just a little bit slower and just a little bit more difficult. And it's just, it just, it is a different vibe. Um, For those that may be feeling the same way I do, and whether it's for team operation or for sort of crisis mode, you talked about social currency, but what do you recommend beyond that, right? That's, that's setting the stage. That's, that falls under my 
a famous saying now, I guess, is don't make an introduction in a crisis. That sort of solves partially for that. But what other advice uh, do you have for those that are maybe new to being this entire remote world, either on the incident side or on the operation side or both? Yeah, I think that there's pros and cons to being remote, right? I think that for anybody who's in the remote environment, you almost have to put yourself out there. You know, I would say that you can shelter yourself away in the office and whatnot. But like, I would say that, you know, we and and as leaders, we try to embrace and encourage engagement, right? So obviously, when COVID became a thing, everyone kind of went remote. And there was all these, you know, different nuances and fun ideas that people were trying to do uh, remote engagement. One, I would say, though, at the very minimum, you have to have a team charter. If you're going to be in a remote environment and you want to have and develop a high-performing team, you have to develop some ground rules, right? How do you communicate? How do you, you know, what technologies are you going to use to interface with each other? What is kind of just the, the playing ground rules to get into the game? On top of that, you have to, one, if you're not a leader, put yourself out there, reach out to people. You know, I like to have at least a monthly touch point where we are all present on live camera feeds with my entire team and we are not even talking about work right it's just a social gathering right i also try to encourage that local teams that are you know near each other that they get together and do things outside of the office as well we may not be able to do that as a a holistic team but i think that it really drives a positive culture in in our group and you know I'm, i'm happy to say that we've we've been able to create this very positive work environment where we haven't really had any attrition in our cybersecurity team. So in the five and a half years I've been here, we've had two voluntary resignations. And our team is about 20 FTEs. So like, I think we're doing we're doing something, something right and something's working well. But I think that, yeah, if you're in a remote environment, you have to put yourself out there. It, that may be uncomfortable for you, right? And it's easy to fall into and succumb to the no video, no camera. But that is my just honest opinion. You just have to put yourself out there and just engage some people. It pleases me. One of the things I see where leaders are tracking attrition or lack thereof, I had a chance to meet with a, a CISO just earlier this week. Hopefully he'll be a guest here. I won't name him yet. But he tracks that as a point of pride. And it's something that I tracked as well. What's the attrition? What's the what's the turnover? And in a in a field where there's quite a lot of it, I think it goes a long way to talk about the culture that you've created and the ways that you eliminate stress and the sort of reoccurrence of problems. And, you know, so if there's an issue that keeps showing up that the InfoSec team discovers and rediscovers and discovers again and fills up sort of the ticket queue or the alert queue, sometimes it takes influence or leadership or, you know, political persuasion to solve these things. It's not just about another piece of technology. It's about leadership and and knocking that stuff down and ultimately changing the environment. So it's not just cleaned up, but hardened to the point that we won't see a repeat, you know, to sort of disrupt and prevent the cycle of that intrusion or event, right? So all of that stuff helps retain staff? Are you a good coach? Do they have steps they know they can take to grow and to move into other areas? Do they know why they're there? What can they answer? Why are you, you know, your job is this, but why are, why are we here? Why are we all here? All those little pieces uh, that you've mentioned are, are incredibly important. I just think it is a little bit more difficult when it's entirely remote. However, just speaking now, I think that maybe it in and of itself might be a way to retain staff just by being remote, maybe, because it gives life flexibility. I think you lose a little bit of the camaraderie, but you address some of that as well. Any thoughts there on on what I just referenced? Yeah, I would, like you're bang on, really. It's, it's, It's not easy. You know, I think that we've had so much practice through traditional means of the, the office environment, right? Like that's just something that there's been decades of work and leadership development on how to do this. And with the remote construct, 
we're still early, fairly early days, right? We're, you know, let's, let's say five years, you know, some companies are doing it a little bit earlier, some, you know, hybrid and whatnot. But I would say though, it is somewhat more challenging. Like I, I feel that there is definitely more effort and more conscious effort that you have to put in to ensure that you are properly managing human capital in your group. And, you know, I think that if you're willing to put that into it, your team will see that. And, and again, you're, you're fostering that culture. You're creating that better culture where people want to work for you. And to the point of retention, I think that's huge, right? It's such an amazing attraction to say, Hey, we let you work from home or even the majority of your work from home, right? I think those are really big selling incentives, especially right now. There's kind of in this limbo and I've been seeing a lot of research and a lot of you know, recruiter companies are, are stating that organizations are wanting to bring people back. And, you know, I'm, I'm mixed feelings on that, right? I don't think that there's one, one kind of view to rule it all. I think it, it depends on the organizational culture, but I do believe that there is a strong cultural preference in cybersecurity where people want to be remote. And if you want to find the best talent, it has to be on the table as an option. Right. And it's tough for me because in my past life, when you would spend this money on building a world-class sock, right, and you would have people there, it was also not only the the feeling of belonging and being close to one another, but some of my best memories were walking into that facility and seeing everybody, right, or watching them come in if I was, if I was the first one, if I turned the lights on, right, or if I were, you know, if I were late that day coming in and seeing, I can see it in my mind you know, uh, clear as can be. And so I'm biased to that because I have this emotional connection. Maybe that just means I'm old because it's something that, I, that, I, that I've hung on to. But I do think it, there's something special there. But I think the, the agile leader needs to be able to manage both. I, I don't think you can operate just one way. And you can't assume that everyone's going to want to move to your city either. And you may not have enough talent there to begin with. So and that's just kind of the way the world is now. But I, I do have a bias to in person because it's it's probably nearest to my heart. But that doesn't mean it's the right way to, to operate either. Let's go back in time. You said you started as a security analyst while you were still in university. So you were still taking classes and you worked nights like second shift, third shift? Yeah, it was generally third shift because I was actually double majoring at the time, just a total glutton for punishment. And so it was uh, sleepless nights and uh, a lot of learning, though, you know, a lot of great expertise. If I had to do it again, I still would. You know, I think that it was invaluable because it, at the end of the day, I felt, you know, it really helped push my capabilities in the classroom, especially separating myself in a competitive landscape with my peers. Right. Absolutely. I, so you worked, you took double major, you worked third shift, the guys that we had in my last sort of more traditional role, all the young guys all wanted second shift because they could finish. Some of them took classes. Some of them were still in university, but they could then they'd get off work at about 11 or 1130 and then and they were getting paid well, but then they were young enough to still want to go out like they were still some of them, you know, hadn't they weren't married or anything like that. So they could go be wild. Do you find that that focused you, I found that I got the best grades when I worked the most. Did that follow suit with you as well? Yeah, totally. It, it definitely allowed me to, you know, to also take what I was learning at work and, you know, present that into class and help me with my studies, right? So it was almost like dual beneficial, right? I was taking things that I was learning and I was learning on the side too. I was doing certifications outside of the classroom as well that really helped advance my capabilities in school. But when I came out of school, I was I had years of experience, right? I had certifications, and there was nobody in my class who could compete with me because of, well, one, I had good grades as well, but I already had the real-world experience, right? And more so than just co-op. But yeah, I thought that it just really helped me become more well-rounded. Uh, also kept me out of trouble, uh, <laughs> which is always a good thing when you're younger. And it really just helped me become more well-rounded, right? And have that appreciation that we already talked about in customer mindset and putting in your dues, right? It's, it's hard work. It's not easy to, you know, find your start, but 
you know, you have to do what you have to do when you're young. I smiled when, so when we spoke earlier and you were talking about that, because not to the degree of what you're talking about, but I was hired before I graduated. So for the, my last year, I had to petition the university to change things around. And I was broke, man. I didn't have anything, but I had this great infrastructure position where I got paid pretty well to be a senior in college. And it was life-changing. And I'm older than you, I, I believe. It was a big deal still to have a laptop. I'll put it that way. And so to have a laptop and a pager and a cell phone and, and sort of have money, those are all very vain things, but they were a big deal at the time. But also to have that connection where now you're working on something during the day. And to your point, there's that knowledge transfer uh, that, that goes kind of both ways is really, really great. So I love it when I see someone applying that sort of in that same, you know, that, that's going to school because it's generally a leg up, right? It's a, it's a situation where I, I needed it and I was very grateful for it. So. Yeah, it's awesome. You, one of the things we talked about, though, as it relates to mentoring and hiring and staff development, I asked you kind of what's your, your new modes of learning today, right? So you've gone to university, you had these goals of certification. What are you focusing on now? So if you're mentoring other leaders or even yourself, what are you focusing on that where would you put your time to continue to learn? Yeah, I think in my... I would say point of career is that, you know, I'm probably not as focused on certifications, right? Like I'm experienced, so been through a couple uh, interesting trenches. And, you know, now I'm looking at things that are a little bit more refined, things that I can kind of drill into maybe some more passionate items. So, you know, as a CISO and as a leader, you kind of shift away from the whole technical world. And like, I loved technology. I love getting my hands dirty. So, you know, I really enjoy still spending time with vendors, looking at the new technology landscape. You know, when I'm out at RSAC, I love the sandbox innovation, all the up and coming new technologies, ideas, right? So I think those things help keep me abreast of, you know, new threats, new capabilities. So I'm still, you know, hopefully keeping up with the times uh, as best as I can. But, you know, I would say just talking to people, right? I love just networking with new people talking about their experiences, going to more intimate talks. Like I actually, and also giving talks. I actually just gave a talk the other day to about 50 CISOs about, you know, how to create a go bag and how to be successful as a CISO during a breach, right? And so, you know, I think that when you do things like that, you put yourself out there, people are receptive. They want to talk to you. You can talk to them. I think it's just great to just talk to people. That's how I do most of my learning now is I just do it purely through networking, just through other people's experiences, right? I don't want to have to go reinvent wheels. And by that, I mean, go live all these experiences myself, right? I want to live vicariously through some other people's experiences. <laughs> so I think that's kind of like the, my, my focus these days is uh, doing that. You bring up a really good point. When you're forced to put together a collection of ideas and create a presentation and deliver it in the form, hopefully in something that's educating to the, you know, the, I always say when I present, I just want there to be one hopeful, hopefully a pearl of wisdom that comes out of the presentation. Just one thing they can steal. That's always the goal. So give them one thing out of all the stuff I talk about, and hopefully it's something they can make use of immediately. So whether it's an idea, phrase, whatever. But I think that's a great sort of leadership goal to how well can you teach other leaders? One of the things I try to measure is how many managers, directors, and CISOs have I made? I keep track of that. And it's a little bit vain to put a, to put a hard number on it. And there's other non-technical or non-leadership roles I've helped with, certainly many technical, but that's a source of pride for me. And if asked, I, I provide that. That's one of my sort of my notables, even on my resume. So I think that that one of the ways you do that is just what you described. Another way that you just illuminated that I really like is spend more time talking about failures. Uh, oftentimes we're in a world where we're made, especially in this sort of Instagram world where we spend, we kind of give a version of ourselves. LinkedIn is this way. I'm honored and humbled to be the recipient of whatever, right? And it's all made to look very pretty. 
educating people on failure and how to prevent it is is much more beautiful in my eyes. So I'm glad you covered that. If I may ask, maybe two or three things from your presentation, being successful as a CISO during a breach. I, I had a talk I gave or have given several times on career management and leadership during a breach. So it's near and dear to my heart. What would be a couple things that you rec- recommend out of that presentation? Yeah, you know, I'd say that first and foremost, you have to have this. So I, I kind of put this construct together called the CISO Triforce because I'm a big Zelda nerd. I was going to ask if it's the, are we talking Zelda Triforce or like is yeah, that new? Okay. Oh, there's even a picture in the slide deck, just a, a bunch of triangles together. Okay, Link. <laughs> There's three, I think, key things that, you know, I, I find is a, is a great way to prepare. And, you know, one is you have to have this wish list, right? Because when you're in the moment, you don't want to be figuring out what the hell you need to do holistically. There's a lot of things that are going to come flying at you that honestly, no one talks about and no one prepares CISOs for. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do with like the different types of content that I, I, I put out there. And, you know, the other one is, and so that wish list, that, that could be technology, that could be your organizational structure design, all those different things, right? And then the other piece is execution, right? So just because you get a bucket of money doesn't mean that solves your problems. And one of the biggest challenges of post-breach world is the actual transformation, right? You got this, okay, you get this money, you have this wish list, cool. Now you got to find, hire, you know, onboard, ramp up, transition, ramp down, and then sustain, right? Like those are such complicated stages in the whole process. And you have to start giving some of that thought, right? So what are the obstacles that, and this is one of the things, is like, what kind of obstacles am I going to face, right? If, if everything goes well, what kind of obstacles am I going to face? Am I going to face procurement challenges, right? Like if I need to, you know, act fast, you know, bolster some defense capabilities, you know, how do I navigate procurement and like actually start having these conversations with your stakeholders? Be like, hey, hypothetical, right? And even you could bring this into your tabletop exercises with executives, all sorts of things. How would I procure something in an emergency situation? You know, those are very real questions we need to uh, have understood before you're, you know, in the hot seat, because everyone's looking to you. You're the captain of the ship at that point. And then the third piece is assurance. And there's a couple things that I, I focus on in assurance. One is you need to assure and build trust with your stakeholders because you just got breached. And there's a lot of people who have concerns with you maybe now that are you the right person, right? And, you know, there might not be an immediate visceral reaction to that because, well, you're in a crisis mode. You just kind of need to address crisis. But I would say that, you know, you need to be able to assure that. So how do you do that, right? If you come hat in hand with with a plan, right, that that boasts confidence in that, okay, yeah, I have a plan. Here's my plan. They're probably going to bring in some third party to assure that you're not crazy, right? And that's pretty normal, right? Like a big four or some other big outfit on the the incident side. But then you also need to assure that, hey, are my critical defensive external posture up to snuff for this new external threat surface that I'm probably facing when I have to announce my breach, right? I think that there's a whole different ball of wax that you get into when you publicly announce breach. There is statistics that I've seen and that we saw through our breaches that you see an exponential curve of attack vector uh, and attacks coming in post-breach once you've announced. And are you ready for something like that? So, you know, getting in pen test, ensuring that things are up to snuff on the external perimeter and getting those things moving very quickly. Like, how do you plan and prep for that? Like walking through your stakeholders uh, in IT, right? This is your IT partnership. So so there's just a lot of things. But I would say those three pillars, the wish list, the execute, and the uh, the assure are really the three prongs of the Triforce in my mind. And if you go through more than one material breach, that wish list then becomes a playbook. Right. And then there's some nuances that change depending on maybe industry or organization and stuff. But, you know, I'd say that's a big one. And I also really focus a lot on talking about mental health through it all. It is arduous going through a breach. Like it is traumatic, if anything. And ensuring that you are not only taking care of your team, but yourself 
And, you know, we all go, we all have a, a, you know, a personal life as well. When I went through the life lapse breach, my wife was pregnant with our first child. She was seven months pregnant, right? And for two months, I, I basically didn't sleep and I rarely saw my wife, you know? So there's a lot of things that happen throughout a breach that have true real world impact. And you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself, you know, your body, your mind, hydrate, right? Food. Make sure you're, you're you know, nourishing yourself and your team. Honestly, put together a little small budget to ensure that you're sending your team food. If you're remote or if you're all together, cater food in. Make sure that all of that's taken care of because that's just one less thing that is going to impede progress. So I think that, you know, those are all things, some of the things that I talk about, about in my uh, go bag kind of creation for when that crisis hits. I was going to ask you, it was the go bag go back connected to the talk. And I, now I know that it is. And I, I'll tell you for those listening, if you're curious, you should rewind and re-listen to everything he just said. Because from my experience working on a very large breach and several other smaller ones now, subsequent to that, and those steps are almost lockstep to what I've recommended in the past. The wish list is you know, you have a plan, know what you need, have a two or a three year plan, know where you're going, you know, who we are, what we do and where we're going. And that where we're going strategy is a subset of that as a, a wish list of if I had found money, what would I do? Whether that's found money at the end of the year, because there's, we didn't spend enough of our budget or someone else, we add a incremental piece of something. But moreover, what are the larger risks on the risk register that your team and your SOC has identified. We do, we do this poorly. We, we need this other program level thing, right? So to have that, I can't tell you how, how wise his three steps are. To have execution, I often joke, there's some people, you probably know them, if you gave them a million dollars today, an individual that may not have the direction that some of us do, they might end up dead. You can't give money to stupid people. And money, you can't buy your way out of the security problem. And one of the things I see over and over and over again is waste during a breach. You're going to waste some money, but if you don't have a line on all the work streams, you will waste money and they'll put silly people in charge of important things. So not only that, then how do we sustain the capabilities? How do we refine them over time? How do we sustain it, as you mentioned? So aptly, but then also, as you mentioned, obstacles, get to know. You mentioned procurement, super important. It's amazing how many CISOs don't have a relationship with their sales teams. How do we make money? What's the sales process? Which leads us into the third point that you mentioned, which is perfect assurance. So you have a situation where now it's harder to sell. People have questions about security. How do you align yourself with the people that make money so, so their job isn't as difficult? I had to get on with our thousand largest customers day two of a breach, and I had never done client management before. I was not the CISO. I didn't report to the CISO. I reported to someone who did and ultimately was elevated. That's a whole nother story. But um, that is a very real thing. In the last piece, you said confidence. It's, it's eerie how close these are. I talk about comfort and confidence. You have to be both. But they have to believe that you are the person to solve the problem and that you have a plan to do it. So I, I cannot tell the listener and I, and I cannot tell you how we've, we've not met before. I mean, we had one other half an hour call, how spot on this is. And I don't, I don't glad hand. So those are absolutely exceptional. Um, and I'd love to see you do your full presentation sometime. Maybe I can uh, join some event that you're speaking at because this is, um, this is excellent, excellent advice. And again, I don't, I'm fairly direct and don't glad hands. That, those are, that's are fantastic points. I don't really align with the Zelda thing. I'm not really a huge Zelda fan, but other than that, it's, it's so thank you for sharing that. Um, that's a, again, re-listen to that section if you're the least bit interested. Most of our listeners are security leaders, sometimes analysts, sometimes legal and privacy, but mainly security leaders and CISO. So that's perfect advice. So thanks again, man. That's, that's perfect. Oh, thank you. Yeah, super, 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 super relevant. I'd be more excited if I wasn't on about four different kinds of flu medicine right now. You talked a little bit, we're, we're nearing our time here. I've kind of a two more things I, I want to ask. You talked about mentorship and you kind of broke it into two sections. And I struggle 
kind of the mentorship versus coaching. You said, you know, you help some younger folks, but you also do some coaching with fellow CISOs, it sounds like, too. What's that? What's that like? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's quite interesting. You know, obviously, you, when you start building a name for yourself, people want to know about your experiences, right? And I think that, you know, when you look at kind of the traditional definition of a, of a mentor, someone who really kind of shares their knowledge, skills, you know, my experiences, to really help them grow and develop. Um, you know, so I think that it's been quite fruitful. I enjoy it a lot because I've always just had this passion to help others, right? There's a reason why I actually work at Life Labs, right? It's a healthcare organization. You know, they're trying to empower all Canadians to get, you know, their digital access, easier access to their healthcare information and empower them to make better decisions to live a healthier life. That's something I really get behind, right? Like I, I try to find a, a good moral compass element to what I do in life. And I, I find that mentorship just kind of comes easy to me. I always enjoyed helping others up a tutor. I actually also taught guitar. I, I've taught math, science early when I was younger. And it's just something that I'm passionate about, right? It's, it's also rewarding for me. And as much as I may be mentoring other people, they mentor me in a, in a reciprocal kind of way, whether they know it or not. Uh, I learn a lot from hearing from other people and helping them through in it. I think it's just, it's truly rewarding. It's one of the greatest rewards that I've ever been able to achieve and, and kind of chase. I would completely agree. I think it helps, it has helped me be a better communicator as well, because it makes me structure my thoughts. You know, I know what I'm thinking about in my own mind, right? But in order to take that advice and actually kind of lay it out in a way that's helpful and, you know, a creative to somebody is, it's not always easy. And it's made me listen a little better, ask better questions, which I, I have not always been the best at. But I think sharing failures is probably sharing where either failures that I've had in my job, in my career, my personal life, insecurities, especially there's a lot of a lot of young men with insecurities that they're still managing with, and, and even as, as, as they get older, that can affect how they perform at work. You uncover a lot in, in this role, it's it, because I think because it's high stress and there's great opportunity in it, and often people in technology and other areas look up to those in this role as well. I, I've, I, at least I found that we had kind of a list of people who wanted to join you know, our group, and, and I was very proud of that. And there's a lot of people who want to know, you know, how do I how do I be one of those? And so helping people on that journey, it's a little bit almost a therapy too, in a way, I think. Here's how I think you can best get ahead. Here's the next things you should work on, right? I don't think we do enough of that. And I think we're largely bad at that in IT. So I've probably been able to stand out a little bit myself, not because I was good, but because I was mediocre and very few other people were doing it, but it was still better than nothing. So I, I like the fact that you've been drawn to that. Do you still teach guitar too i do so i actually i just recently picked the guitar back up it's been a while i stopped playing for about 13 years but i, I just recently started back in end of december and i actually in my abundance of free time auditioned for berkeley college of music and i was accepted so i am uh, enrolled in berkeley college of music for guitar performance so you're not quite the Clapton status, but almost. Sure. Maybe one day. But yeah, it's just, it was ultimately my main passion, right? I, I spoke earlier on about how I wanted to get into music. And at that point in life, it just wasn't the right time, right? And I think everything has a time and place in your life. And, you know, it's a passion. It's a dream of mine. And it's also something that I want to set forward as kind of a precedent and just a, a positive example to my children, right? Is that you should always pursue your dreams. You should always chase your dreams, no matter what circumstances may have led you to where you are today. Try and, and achieve what you set out to because you only have the one life to live, right? Great kind of closing advice there. Kind of pursuant to that, as I sometimes say, pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? You know, it's, it's interesting. 
I've had this question asked quite a bit, like what what does it mean to be a, a CISO? And you know, I think that when I reflect upon kind of my journey and being a CISO and and just where I see other people, I think that it's it's really this almost unicorn type role <laughs> that you know there's a lot of demand on the CISO. There's a lot of and you, and you referenced it too. There's a lot of insecurities as well of you know how are we doing are we doing well are we doing the right thing what are other people doing i think being a new ciso i think it's just being agile right again having that customer mindset being open and receptive to feedback constantly improving on yourself not only as a uh, security practitioner but also as a leader right i think that we just need more great leadership in the security realm and I think that, you know, you, you said it beautifully earlier is that you actually track how many leaders did you create, right? And there's that old adage, you're not a leader until you've, you've built a leader. And I think that it's, it's absolutely true, right? Is that we need to continuously improve upon ourselves to help others improve them, themselves. And I think just being a new CISO is just something that is an uncharted territory. There is no defined path on how to go through this. I think just being your most authentic self and be willing to help others, I think is going to be very fruitful in, in being a new CISO. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. This is, has been an exceptional conversation and I'm fortunate to have been able to have many on this show. And this, to me, some of the advice you've given is probably some of the best that's ever been shared. So thank you so much again for your time. Oh, thanks again for having me, Steve. This was, this was a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure getting to talk with you. That is it for this episode of The New CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.